Well, good morning, church. It's Palm Sunday, and we are celebrating the triumphal entry of Jesus to Jerusalem. And it's, it's just a wonderful time for us to really celebrate how God has just blessed that city. And in a way, it's really celebrating uh, God's blessing to the whole world and to the whole nation. Friends, just as we start celebrating the, the, this, this Sunday, just one of the things that I would like to ask to ask ourselves is this. How is it that there's just a single reality, but we interpret it differently? Have you ever wondered about that? There's a single reality, but in many ways, people and each one tend to interpret it differently. Take, for example, the case of couples, husbands and wives. Do you know that if you ask a couple how they met, you would have two stories, two different ways of looking at the same reality? And I've always been wondering about that. In fact, there, there's, there's a saying that if you gather a, a rabbi, a priest, and a pastor to talk about God, they would end up having four ideas of God. A single reality, but different ways of interpreting that reality. And I think that's true. Because each one of us has our own perspective of reality, of the truth. Take, for example, the case that when we look at a certain thing, we are always experiencing that based on our own specific experiences, our own perceptions, our own biases even. It's like wearing sunglasses with different colors. If you're wearing your sunglasses uh, in green, then of course everything becomes green. If it is yellow, then everything becomes yellow. If it is black, then everything becomes black. And our perception of reality is always based on that reality. It is based on the fact that our own biases, our own imperfections, even our own experiences would tend to view things differently because of that. If there's a wonderful story from ancient India, it's a story of blind persons and an elephant. And because these blind persons have, ne have never had seen an elephant and never even touched an elephant, so they don't really have an idea of what an elephant is. But one day, an elephant was brought into that village, and so the, the, the blind persons, the blind men were just so happy because for the first time, they would now have a sense of what an elephant is. And so they were given the, the chance to touch an elephant. And one was touching the side of the elephant, and, and, and that blind man said, whoa, the elephant is like a wall, because he was just touching the, the side of the elephant. And another blind person was touching the, the, the leg of the elephant, and he said, well, the elephant is like a tree. And the other one was holding the, the, the ears, and he said, well, it's like, it's like a, uh, a fan. And the other one was holding, actually, the, the, the tail, and he said, it's like a snake. Now, the question, my friends, is this. Who among them is right and who among them is wrong? Who among them is right in terms of what an elephant is and who among them is wrong? Well, the truth is, all of them are right because they are describing a portion of an elephant. But they are also wrong because it's only a portion of the whole. It's a limited perception. It's a limited interpretation of reality. Do you know that the way that we see God is in a different matter? It, it's in the same thing as well. We tend to view God differently 
based on our own experiences, based on our own perceptions, based on our, even our own biases. And the, the proof to that would be the, the proliferations of denominations, of different religious groups. Because each one of us, each group would have different ways of interpreting the reality of God. And as we grapple with our own journey with God, that same thing would be taking place. And I would like us to ask basic two questions right now. The first question is this. Who is God beyond your subjective perception? And second, who is God in your subjective perception? You see, the story of the elephant is, is this. The moral lesson is that they claim an absolute truth based on their own limited subjective experience. Let me repeat that. The moral lesson of that story about the elephant is this, that they claim absolute truth based on limited subjective experience. Isn't it, isn't it the same as with the way we view God? We tend to define God and conceive of God based on our own limited subjective experience. If you have been abused, then you tend to view God the Father as someone who is not even a father, as someone who is abusive, someone who is authoritative, someone who is punishing you. But if you have had such a good experience in life, then your view of God is different. It, everything becomes positive. You tend to view God as a loving father. Because your experiences, your biases, and your own perceptions would really be based on those things that you have experienced in your life. Those are limited subjective experiences. And so we grapple with these two questions. Who is God beyond your subjective experience? Because we do know that God goes beyond and is beyond his creation. He is beyond his creation. He is not human. He is above that. He is beyond us. And so our perception of God would be that he is objective. He is beyond us. And how, but how could we experience that? And how could we interpret God based on the fact that he is beyond us and beyond our own subjective experience? But the second question is also true. Who is God in our own subjective experience? Who is God in our own sufferings, in our own pains, in, in our own day-to-day -day life? Who is God? But you see, my friends, this, the answers to these two questions could not really be different. In fact, when you come to think of it, this really, the, the answers to these two questions really converge in Jesus. Because in Jesus, God, who is perfect, who is above us, became human. And he is now part of our own subjective experience. It is in Jesus that all of these things converge. That while he is objective, while he is above us, he is still in us, present in our everyday lives, present in whatever things that is happening to you, whether it might be suffering, whether it might be because of the fact that you are sick or you are ill or you are experiencing family dynamics that's really destroying your own emotional and, and psychological state. God is present. And that is the beauty of God. When he came down to earth to become a man, to become human, he became real in our own subjective reality. And so he is there. God is with us when we celebrate Christmas. He is here. He is present. And nothing 
is further from the truth when it comes to the reality of God's presence in our lives than what, what is expressed in Scripture. In Scripture, as found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. He is tempted in every way, but he did not commit sin. That, my friends, would be the answer to the two questions. He is perfect. He did not commit sin. But in that, imper- in that perfection of him, of his, he became human. He became part and essential to our humanity. He is tempted. And that means he knows our own pains and our own struggles. He is not above us. He is above us. But at the same time, he is part of us and he is with us. In Christ, all of the answers to those two questions converge. And so this would be our journey today, our journey of who Jesus is to us in our own subjective experiences. That would be the main question that we would be asking today. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus, who is God, beyond us, perfect, but who is he to you as someone who is now personal, Someone who is living the subjective experience that you are living, who knows your weaknesses, who knows your imperfections, and who knows your struggle. Who is Jesus to you? And I would like us to answer this question by reflecting on our text this morning on Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. In this text, it tells us actually of three possible ways of looking at who Jesus is. And we would be learning from those perceptions, from those perspectives, as represented in three groups of people in this story in Mark chapter 14. You know, the beauty of Mark and the gospel of Mark is this, that he uses a literary style of inserting a story within a story. That has always been Mark's style. Several, several areas, actually, of, of Mark's teaching has been that way, that he is inserting a story within a story, for the purpose of emphasizing something. And so there are actually two stories here in Mark. The first story would be the story of religious, religious people and people who have been against Jesus. And then here's this wonderful story inside of that, the story of a woman. And so let us look first as to what, what one group of, of people view and perceive of Jesus in their own lives. And that would be through the representations of the religious leaders. For them, Jesus is a threat, is an adversary. Let me repeat that. For the religious leaders, Jesus is a threat, an adversary. You know, have you not reflected on the fact that for the three years of ministry of Jesus, his main points of contention were with religious leaders? the Sadducees, the Pharisees. And it was really, it, it was really vitriolic. It, it was really hostile to the point that in our text, they were actually wanting to kill Jesus. That means that, that the hostility is really very, very strong. And come to think of it, you have to ask yourselves, why are they so against Jesus? They saw Jesus performing miracles, healing the sick. Yet in spite of that reality that Jesus had shown to them, They were just so hostile to Jesus to the point that they want to kill Jesus. 
I do believe that the reason for that is because of their own perception of God and their own reality of how they perceive of God. Because for the religious leaders, they view of God as someone who needs to be pleased through the law and through the fulfillment of the law. In fact, that's, that's how they are defined in terms of who they are, in term, but that would be in terms of their religiosity. They are really religious. They fulfill the letters of the law, even to the smallest iota, to the point that on a Friday, they could not do anything else but stop everything that they're doing because that's the law. And, but that is the problem with regards to how they view Jesus and how Jesus views the purpose of the law. For the religious leaders, they view it in terms of the fulfillment of the letter of the law. But for Jesus, it's about, it's about the spirit of the law. The letter is different from the spirit. The letter would be the literal interpretation of the law, just like in, in 401, for example. The, well, what's the speed limit right now? Is it already 110? I think they increased the speed limit. So 110 would be the letter of the law. That's, that's, the, that's the maximum that you could, you could drive in 401. That's the letter. But do you know what the spirit of the law is? The spirit of the law would be that you do not need to go beyond that because that's dangerous. That's the spirit of the law. And for the religious leaders, they were just so focused on those letters, the, 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 the iota, the smallest iota of the law, to the point that they have forgotten what is the purpose of that. Jesus said about the Sabbath that man is not made for the Sabbath. But Sabbath is made for man. We do not fulfill the law for the fulfillment of the law. We fulfill the law because it has a purpose. And that is to please God. And that is even to be an honor to ourselves. That has always been the case. But my friends, many people have been so against Jesus because of the fact that Jesus could be someone who is a threat to you a threat to your own way of life. The moment you see that Jesus ways, he's talking about love, his compassion, and then you could not see that as part of who you are as a Christian or as a human being, then you make Christ as your enemy. If you are doing something that's wrong before God, and then Jesus and the Bible tells you to do this, then Christ becomes a threat to your way of life just like the religious leaders. But you know what? Sometimes Christians become also a cause while other people have been able to see Jesus as a threat to them, as an adversary. Our own actions that are totally against what God's will is. The story of the residential schools have led so many indigenous persons to hate Christianity and to hate Jesus because of the actions of Christians. Our own, our own way of life, our own moral standards, the way we live, the way we speak could be a hindrance so that other people becomes, they, they view Jesus as a threat and an adversary rather than someone who loves them. Secondly, the other group of people that see Jesus differently would be those people who have criticized that woman. Here's this beautiful story of a woman who opened a very, very expensive uh, perfume and anointed Jesus. But instead of praising that woman, 
a group of people, well, it, the, the scripture says some people complained. They complained because the, the, the perfume was so expensive. In fact, it, it is worth more than a year's wages. And if you're talking about wages today, it might, just, it might even be beyond above six, $60,000. It's really so expensive. But they complained. They said that, why did you do that? Why did you buy such expensive perfume? It should have been sold and given to the poor. Interesting response to an act towards Jesus. And for those people, they see Jesus as a cause. They see Jesus as a cause. Do you think that Jesus is against the poor? I don't think so. Jesus was not against the poor. You see, during the time, the days before the Passover, those are the times of almsgiving, of helping the poor. And for some people, it might just be a religious obligation. It might not even be a real cause for them to do something for the poor, but because of the fact that it is dictated by the law. Or they might even have a real concern for the poor. But they have forgotten something that the celebration of the Passover is about God. It's not that God is against the poor, but the focus of the Passover would be that it is about God. It is about the worship of God. Helping the poor is not just about helping the poor. It's about pleasing God because God commands everybody to love the poor. Friends, one of the lessons that we need to take in this would be this one. We might be so focused on helping the poor that we have forgotten what is the purpose of that in relation to the whole reality of the nature of God. Helping the poor is not just about helping the poor. It is tied to our own worship and relationship with God. The moment it separates, then there's a problem there because it becomes a cause. But Christianity is more than a cause. Christianity is not just about doing justice. Christianity is not just about doing compassion. Christianity is not just about helping the poor. We are doing that because God commands us and because it is the nature of God, because God is a God of justice. That is what we call as biblical justice. Tim Keller wrote a very, very beautiful piece which I would really like you to read. It's uh, entitled a, Bic- a Biblical Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory. And in that piece, Tim Keller was able to differentiate what's the difference between biblical justice and secular justice. And for Tim Keller, this is the gist, the summary of what he was saying. That for him, biblical justice is based on a moral absolute. It is based on the character of God. Let me repeat that. Biblical justice is based on a moral absolute. It is based on the character of God. That means that we are helping the poor and we are doing justice, not just for doing justice's sake. Because the moment you do that, no matter how altruistic your reason is, it means nothing. Let me repeat that. No matter how how much you do justice and compassion and helping the poor, if it is not tied to the nature of God, then it means nothing. Because it was a God, it is based on the character of God in the first place. 
We are doing justice. We are doing compassion because God commands us to do so. Because God loves the poor. That is the basis for our community outreach. That is the basis for our work on justice. That is the basis for everything we do for this world. There are so many people who do justice, but it is not based on God. And the truth is, you know what? Even liberal justice, it is actually based on the Judeo-Christian tradition, which means that it is still based on the character of God. This is our calling, to do justice. In fact, when you look at the ways that Jesus had performed miracles and healing, it is always based on that character of God. Jesus did not do healing for healing's sake. Jesus did not do performance of the miracles for, for just doing miracles' sake. It, that was not the case. It was because of the fact that it points to the kingdom. Those were signs. You see, for people, Christianity for them and following Jesus is just a matter of a cause. And for them, sometimes they see Jesus even as just the political Messiah. And, and that, was, that was where people had been wrong because they view Jesus as based on their own perceptions and limited, limited biases. Many people who were there during, during the triumphal entry of Jesus and weighing those palms, each one of them, those groups of people would have different ways of looking at Jesus. They, they, they were, of course, they were shouting Hosanna, but for different reasons. For many, they were expecting Jesus to be the political Messiah to drive out the, 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 the Roman Empire from, from Israel. For many people even, they tend to view Jesus as just a, a healer, someone who could just remove their sickness and illnesses and all their sufferings. But Jesus is beyond that and above that. That's why Jesus is not, is not just a miracle worker. Because the moment you view Jesus as a miracle worker, then he's just... He's, he's not God. God is beyond that. And the signs and the, the miracles and the healings that Jesus performed are signs that point to the kingdom. They're not healing for healing's sake. They were not miracle for miracle's sake. This points to the fact that that's the nature of God. Please do not convert Christianity as a cause because this is not a cause. It's beyond that. Jesus is calling us to relate to him, to be in a relationship with God, and from there everything starts. All our actions, all our acts of compassion and justice is based on the nature of God. But the true response to Jesus would be through the woman, the action of the woman of anointing Jesus. And for her, Jesus was the Lord, was, was her Lord and Savior. For the religious leaders, Jesus was a threat, an adversary. And for those, some disciples and, and people who followed Jesus, Jesus for them was just a matter of a cause. But for that woman, Jesus is her Lord and Savior. There's a parallel text of this story in John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, John identified this woman as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And so for Mary, her act of devotion to Jesus was, was sort of a natural thing because she saw the miracles that were performed, the resurrection of, his, of her brother. 
But there was even a time where Jesus was there in their home and Martha was complaining because Mary was not helping out in the kitchen. And so Martha said, please tell this woman to help me. But Jesus said, no, she's doing a wonderful thing. She is there on my feet, learning and listening. The same thing that Jesus said to those who were complaining. And Jesus said, do not stop that woman. She is doing a beautiful thing. Friends, have you asked yourselves, what's the most beautiful thing that you have done to G- for Jesus? Are you doing and are you helping the poor for the sake of Jesus? Are you doing justice for, for, because you love Jesus? In what ways are you loving Jesus and you're showing your devotion to him at this time? These are the things that we do need to realize. Because for that woman, she gave up everything. She sold, well, I mean, she used such an expensive item and gave it to Jesus. And that's an act of sacrifice. For her, Mary did not see it as a resource to assist the poor. She saw it as a resource to assist in worship. She saw it as a resource to assist in worship. If you love someone, then you give your greatest. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm even talking about your life, the sacrifice that you do. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate thing that you could do when you love a person would be to give the greatest to that person. And again, I'm, I'm not talking about diamonds that you give to your wife or money. It's about the sacrifice. Because when you love someone, you, you don't, cost doesn't matter. And so you give your life. You offer that to God. You sacrifice and you, gave, you give everything. The old English word for the term worship is worthship. To give worth to something. And is that not an act of worship? That when you give God worth, you worship him. And in what ways then do you give worth to Jesus in your own life? In what ways do you sacrifice your life for Jesus? Sacrificing even your own selfish interest for the sake of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said, He who does not leave his father or mother or his brothers or family and doesn't follow me is not worth to be my disciple. And that means that Jesus is really requiring the best of us. My friends, We are called to be devoted to a person and not a principle. This is God's calling for us. This is the way that he wants us to do. There's a beautiful text in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19. It's the the whole chapter actually of Matthew 16 speaks about one of the most hostile experiences of Jesus with the religious leaders. And in that text in Matthew 16, Jesus was warming, she, she, uh, Jesus was warming the, the, the parables that, or warning the, par, uh, the, the disciples that you need to be aware of the yeast of, the, of these religious leaders. It was a warning to them. Be careful of these religious leaders. And then after the teaching, Jesus was with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. And that was the time that Jesus gathered his disciples and asked, them, who do people say I am? 
And some disciples said, well, you're John the Baptist. Or other people said that you're Jeremiah or, or Elijah. And then point blank, Jesus asked his disciples, how about you? Who do you say I am? And it was Peter who responded, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Friends, that would be the same question that would be asked to you right now. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus beyond your subjective experience? But who is also Jesus in your subjective experience? Let us reflect on this question today. Who is Jesus to you? Wherever you are in your life situation right now, in your struggles, in your season of life, who is Jesus to you? This would be our reflection question. And as we reflect on this question, since it is Palm Sunday, I would like you to get these cards that's in your, in your pews. And I would like you to answer that question and write it at the back of this, of this uh, picture of a palm leaf. And we will spend time to answer that question, who is Jesus to me? Just don't say Jesus is my Lord and Savior. That's not enough. Who is Jesus in your current situation? Who is Jesus in your current lived experience? Who is Jesus in your illness and in your sickness? Who is Jesus in your family dynamics? Who is Jesus in your workplace? But I would like you to answer that question and then write that at the back of this, of this cutout. And then as we do so, let us reflect on that. Shall we take time to be silent, to be reflective, to pray as we write an answer to that question of who Jesus is in our lives?